Psychomedy is brought to you by ThreadUp, Manchester-based therapy that supports creativity. I'm Rafaela Nunes, the founder of ThreadUp and the counsellor supporting the creative community. Comedians and creatives in general can experience anxiety, depression, low moods, and this in turn can affect their creativity. One-to-one counselling can facilitate a safe space for creatives to explore any difficulties, to gain self-awareness, to develop strategies that work, and ultimately to create choices that are aligned with the natural creative flow. If you're in need of support, then please get in touch. Visit threadup.co.uk to book your counselling sessions at reduced rates when you quote Psychomedy. Comedy. I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a subject I've been studying for 25 years and a quarter of a century of studying the fascinating way our minds work on and off stage alongside being stand-up comedian for the last 10 years has led me here today discussing the psychology of comedy with today's very special guest, the lovely Mark Dolan. Well, hello, an honour and a privilege to be here, uh, Master of Arts in Political Science. Oh, wow. From Edinburgh University. What a waste of taxpayers' money that was. (laughs) But guys, thank you. I had a great time. (laughs) So, as normal on Psychomedy, we won't be looking at each other for the duration of the chat. Mark is laying back here on my sofa. I'm so glad you're not looking at me because you don't know I'm having a really bad hair day. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see that on the clip. And I'm I'm also naked. (laughs) So... I've got to look now. Um, Jesus, wow. You are tall. It's so hard, by the way. <laughs> it's really hard for um, somebody that's either a comedian or a broadcaster, both of which I am, uh, to not look at you. Because actually, either if you're interviewing someone or being interviewed you know, in a broadcast situation, which, which this is, mm. or um, in stand-up comedy, it's very much about connecting with yep. the person who you're speaking to, and a lot of that would be eye contact. And so it's quite an unusual feeling not looking at you. Indeed. So we're testing you today. I feel I've got one hand tied behind my back. (laughs) That is literally the purpose, yes, to give me the upper hand. No, of course not. Um, So, Mark, we started comedy probably at the same kind of time at the turn of the millennium. Yes. Um, I lasted less than two years before I realised I had absolutely nothing to talk about, apart from crisps, as I remember. So I went off writing around the world uh, for about 10 years while you built a successful TV career without me. Um, and from memory, we were going, were we? I did leave you a voicemail, to... but I, didn't, I think you moved house or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where was the invite to that party, that TV party? Um, so from memory, weren't we going to do a kind of split hour in 2001? Wasn't there talk about that? And that's when you got a bit of TV and didn't do Edinburgh from memory? Was that... How it panned out, or did you just drop me like a Well, I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Gosh, that was two decades ago, wasn't mm. it? It's really hard when you ask a comedian, when did you start? Because mm. I think we started about the age maybe of mm, four. Yeah. You know, there's something in the <laughs> DNA of performers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's the eternal question, is it nature or nurture? Are you just naturally a show-off? 
um, or was it to do with your upbringing? But um, either way, I have more or less craved an audience since day (laughs) one. Um, And I think uh, that moment in 2000, 2001, that was when I actually made it my job and called myself a comedian. Yeah. Um, and so I couldn't say that it was an exact moment, but I entered a national stand-up competition called So You Think You're Funny, yeah. which I believe you were into. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, the same year as you, yeah. I think so. so. Was, now, what was that would, 2000? I'd say it was either 99 or 2000, probably 2000. And didn't we do that audition with Russell Brand at the Comedy Cafe? Yes. Me, yes, you, we Russell did. Brand. Yes, yeah? we did. And Russell, well, let's not tell the story of that. But. Well, I don't know what happened to him. I think he's in <laughs> construction now, but he was a good person. <laughs> But yeah, it was really interesting. And, uh, and so therefore, and that's, that's why I actually feel a very warm connection to you is mm. because we were both puppies. Mm. Um, we were uh, at, the, in, you know, at the very beginning of our careers. And so those early noughties were special because that, that was the moment. I, I didn't actually, you mentioned 2001 and mm. the Edinburgh Fringe and all that stuff. But ultimately, there was no great success but mm. I definitely could say I'm a comedian. There wasn't, there was no day job. There was no, um, you know, filing in an office or telephone sales or, mm. you know, McDonald's front of house happening. Yeah. Uh, I was definitely earning my living from comedy and it was a very meager living, but a great feeling. And, you know, the most important decision I've made in my life, I would say. Yeah. So that happened relatively quickly, didn't it? In terms of people starting comedy. Um, yeah. So that happened within a, a year or two. And I've heard on other podcasts of you telling lovely luck stories of how it happened with Dan Mazer and Channel yeah. 4 people and yeah. that kind of thing. So that was... Uh, I the... slept with um, Dan Mazer <laughs> yeah. for four years. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I'd got into show business after approximately two weeks. So we didn't really need the three years, 11 <laughs> months. But he was attractive. So what are you going to do? So when that was kicking off kind of relatively quickly... I we mean, should say Dan Mazur was the uh, producer of the Ali G show indeed. and Borat, and he's basically a genius. Yeah. yeah. And so, it was my first break. And it's interesting that you do need, because we think of ourselves as performers as very much, you know, that we are this sort of solo um, entity. Yeah. Um, and if you look at the the imaging of stand-up comedy, it's you, a microphone, and then a bunch of people hopefully in front of you watching and listening and occasionally laughing even. Yeah. Um, And it's like, no, it's not really like that. And you've got to have your supporters. You've got to have your fans. You've got to have your tribe, really. Yeah. Um, Having your loved ones on board is one thing, but also just an individual in the industry who goes, I like this guy, is essential. And that happened with this guy, Dan Mazer. Yeah. So there was a story that you told... And so is this true that you were you had a pitch meeting with him and it went badly and you were walking yeah. down the stairs next to him and you just said to him, I've got another idea and it's shit, but here it is. And he liked it. And that's how it happened. Yes, it's so that's ridiculous, amazing. isn't it? That's amazing. Um, sometimes I found in my life, whether it's to find love or indeed career success, that the more you push, the further away it goes from you. Mm. It's just like counterintuitive. You're trying and the effect is extremely negative. And then the opposite is the case that if you withdraw and pull back and go, okay, well, I've done the hard sell, that's not working, I'm here if you need me. Yeah. And, then, and, then it, and then it happens. And then it's just a, it's a very strange dance that you do, not only with these individuals, but just with somehow with fate 
with the very concept of success itself. The minute you chill out about it, then it comes to you. I mean, some people say that about money as well. That if you chase money, you never get it. Mm. But if you suddenly don't care about it, it's like, yeah, whatever. It's all very abstract. Then and, and then you make money. Um, so That's really interesting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I sort of, we could probably dive into that a little bit because um, a bit of a through line of my career has been that some things have come to me. And I always say about showbiz that quite often you get the gigs you don't deserve and at other times you don't get the gigs you do deserve. Mm. And I've had emails from my agent with a proposal for something that I'm absolutely not qualified for. I did a movie show for five years. I have, I, I've literally, I think I've seen The Sound of Music. That is it. <laughs> I, I think movies are a nice thing, but I'm quite the opposite of an expert. Hosted a movie show for five years, but shouldn't have been allowed. Um, but then there's other shows where they need a six foot five comedian with glasses who's slightly posh and um, a little bit sardonic. And, and it's actually called, the pilot's called The Mark Dolan Show. And I, I get like, you know, the second recall. And it's like, afraid it's going to be Jimmy Carr, but thanks anyway. So, you know, it's very counterintuitive. But, um, but uh, yeah, this, this meeting was a good opportunity. Um, and I think this is my advice to anybody starting out and, and actually th- throughout your career, really, which is you must be out there doing it. Um, if you want to find love, I think that you go to parties and you take up a hobby, you do line dancing or whatever, or <laughs> kickboxing. But definitely, you know, I found love eventually just by not being a lazy git and actually leaving the house, leaving the flat. And, you know. and I think it's the same in, in comedy, which is that you've just got to you just got to do every gig. And there was just a particular evening. It was a wet Tuesday night. And I remember feeling a bit depressed and it's like what's the point of all of this and there's no money and I'm living off credit cards and um mm. and it's, it, success feels like very far away but this was after the moment where I've decided to be a comedian so I was like, I'm a comedian now but it's not not all that great mm. and there was a show on a Tuesday night in Soho um above a pub called I believe the Bricklayer's Arms Yes, I remember it. I remember it. You remember it. And yeah. it was a very badly run gig with no microphone. Yeah, I used to run it, yeah. You ran it? No, no. Definitely not. You, all your gigs are fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but they didn't have a microphone. And the MC, the resonant MC, was a very talented, funny man called Ivan Seward. And I remember it was raining. And my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and I were just sort of, um, you know, just... Cozy sat on the sofa and I'm thinking, wow, there's a chicken tikka masala from Waitrose in the fridge because mm. I know how to live. And I could just really have a nice evening now. But I, I just thought, you know what? It's like, do you want this or not? Do you actually want to be a comedian? Um, do you want to be successful? And if so, then you'll go to this because it's a gig. Yeah. And so I dragged myself out in the pouring rain to this. Obviously, goes without saying, unpaid as well. Mm. And by the way, I have a pet hate, and I don't know if you, how you feel about this. I don't like gigs that don't have a microphone. Oh, of course. Yeah, it's a very important tool. It's not just about being heard, but it's it's a, a visual signal to the audience. And also, if you're amplified, it means you can throw punchlines away a little bit, and you can undercook some of your punchlines. Yeah. And if you don't have a microphone, it becomes street theatre, which yeah. is one of my pet hates that we don't have time to I like to the mic to be slightly louder than it needs to be, just so 100%. I can be softer, just so I can whisper into it. Yeah. That's exactly right. So I'm going off to this gig and I do it. 
and I think I did an okay job. You know, I always do give 100% for every gig I, I, I do. I just feel like there are people here. Um, they deserve that I make an effort. Yeah. Sense of duty, duty of care to them. Mm. So anyway, done the gig. And at the end of the evening, someone comes up to me from Channel 4 and says, I'm, I'm, we're basically starting a new channel called E4. Yeah. And we are looking for new talent for a new show called Show Me the Funny. Um, do you have any ideas for like funny bits for a TV show? Mm. And I said, yes, I have a million ideas. Because the first rule of show business is you, you say that you can do everything. So <laughs> I was like, yes, I'm an experienced comedy writer. I can ride a horse. <laughs> and I'm um, just sort of Liberace level in terms of playing the piano. That's what you have to do. You, you just bullshit your way uh, into the room because that's the thing. You've just got to get in the room and then you can make your apologies once you're there. <laughs> so anyway, cut long story short, I went for this meeting and I prepared and I had all these ideas written down. And this guy, Dan Mazer, who's you know one of the big faces really uh, of of noughties comedy anyway so he's at the head of the table and we're all pitching our ideas in i've got maybe six or seven ideas i pitch every idea he's like nah that's that's no good no that's rubbish no that's unoriginal and literally it's just gone terribly badly Mm. no to everything i then leave the meeting and i'm just the great moment of luck is that i happen to be walking down the stairs of this georgian townhouse which was the headquarters of talkback which is a very important production company I mean, it still is, but at the time they were making the 11 o'clock show, Ali G, and I'm Alan Partridge. So amazing place to be. Mm. Walking down the stairs of this Georgian house on Newman Street in Soho. And he's just next to me. And it just, because he's next to me, I have to say something. We can't walk down the stairs in silence. So I said, oh, thanks very much for that. Really appreciate it. Um, there was one other idea, but it was so terrible. I didn't, it's not even worthy of the meeting. And he's like, oh, okay, what, what, what's that? And I said, um, I thought of doing a little travel piece in the style of Wish You Were Here or the holiday program that BBC used to do yeah. in which um, somebody like Judith Chalmers would go to Tenerife and then she'd do a little package about, you know, the, the lovely hotels and the restaurants and the nightlife and then at the end you'd get how much it costs and average hotels and flights. So I thought, why don't we do a travel piece but somewhere rubbish like West Drayton, uh, which is in Hillingdon. And he's like, I really like that. That's really funny. He's like, okay, give us your email. We'll get, you'll get back in touch. And uh, on the back of that good fortune of somehow walking out of the, out of the meeting with him, pitching this terrible idea that wasn't good enough for the meeting and we made it, it featured in the pilot Channel 4 loved this travel report and it was done completely straight-faced. It was, it was um, really, really subtly done yeah. where it wasn't um, sneering at all. It was just a case of, hello, I'm Mark Dolan and welcome to, you know, great holidays. Today, <laughs> we're, at the, uh, we're, in, uh, we're in West Drayton, which is the jewel in Hillingdon's crown. Let's find out why. And I just go to the library and I'm like, look, whole range of books, including um, Charles Dickens. And then get this woman to come up to me and go, shh, that's right. Don't forget to keep your voice down. After all, it's a library. And uh, we just talked about like the good roads it had and uh, the other amenities. And then I'm in a hotel room. So anyway, it's the worst thing ever, isn't it, Nathan, to actually explain a comedy bit. You, yeah, yeah. you need to kind of watch it. 
but it was it was somehow quite different to what was happening on telly at the time. You yeah. had Trigger Happy TV, eleven o'clock show. It was all very uh, punchy and very. A lot of it was sarcastic, a little bit sneering <laughs> at times. Uh, oh, it still sounds of, funny. You could bring it back. I'm sure it's. Uh... Well, yeah, <laughs> and it was. I mean, it was interesting because I used to do some hidden camera stuff, mm. and they did actually an article about how TV was was really like becoming nasty. And the, it was in the Guardian, and it featured a photograph of me pointing at the camera, and it just said, "This man hates you," and it was about how all the TV was all hidden cameras, winding people up, and it was just right. attack, attack, attack. Anyway, this piece in West Drayton was sort of really charming and gentle and warm and upbeat. The tone was very different, and um, anyway, Channel Four loved it, and I wound up being the presenter of this new series, and that was my first big break in telly. Nice, nice. So. Yeah, it was just so interesting to when you said, uh, you know, don't push for that. Don't push for that break. It comes to you. When that happened to you then, that stroke of luck, is that now looking back and thinking, well, I've, I've become that more in recent years? Or was that when you kind of thought, I'll stop pushing and it might come to me if I just relax more into it? Did you realise how lucky that was there? Or is that just looking back in retrospect? I think I've always uh, followed my instincts and... For example, in the media with television, having presented, you know, numerous series in different uh, genres, including documentaries for Channel 4. That was a sort of 12 one hour films about the most extraordinary people in the world. Yeah, there was Balls of Steel and a few other things. And then and then from one moment to the next, it it all just died down. And I mean, Mm. I don't like that expression. The phone stopped ringing. But it, it it rang less often <laughs> and yeah uh, you know at first i went into a period of mourning about it because right. it was a sense of rejection was there a moment where you were then pushing and uh, you realized that the phone had stopped ringing yes so that's a, it's a specific it's a little, moment where you well i suppose it's like quicksand where um things are maybe and by the way, this is just a cycle, and it's it's you know yeah you you we talked about it with Marcus Brigstock who oh, yeah. you know, was talking about you know presenting have I got news for you then not getting the call to present and just being asked to be on it and yeah it's very cyclical it'll come back and it will just you know it goes away and comes back that's the nature of it yeah I think that's right and I think um, but it's bruising it's very bruising in mm. fact it was the hardest time it was harder than those early days when the phone had never rung anyway I remember I used to have this. <laughs> very small Sony Ericsson phone. And I used to stare at it and go, just fucking ring. Just <laughs> fucking ping something, you know. And I'd, and I'd get a text and it would be from my sister, who's a fabulous person, but it wasn't somebody <laughs> offering me an opportunity. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's an adjust, It's probably harder. It's, if you've never had success, then, you know, you don't know what you're missing. Whereas if you've sort of had that feeling of um, being... Um, in demand mm. then when it ceases to be then it's a, a painful an adjustment but is is that not then the moment where you have to start chasing it and being more ruthless right Cause you always come across right. as such a jovial nice guy and if you're saying that you mm. know you're waiting for that success then to to come to you if it stops coming is that when you're you know chasing it more and being you know are you ever ruthless are you ever kind of chasing it? are you ever um the opposite of just lying back and hoping it will happen you know well i think that is a really uh, great question and i think that's where i use the metaphor of quicksand mm. because when the tide has turned 
And Joan Rivers said, it's not about, in show business, it's not how good you are, it's how hot you are. Yeah. And I think never a true word is, is said. And she had an incredible career, but there was a point where she wound up doing stuff on, on the QVC shopping channel. Like Joan Rivers, one of the greatest comic minds, one of the greatest performers in the history of comedy. Yeah. And she's flogging necklaces. So, you know, it's like, it gives you hope in many ways. <laughs> it was only her, she appeared on The Apprentice, I think, which Celebrity Apprentice, which she then won and then she became hot again as Joan Rivers. Anyway, yeah. so um, the, the problem you've got is that when the tide has turned, the more you fight it and the more you try to to get back on the box or whatever then then the more people push back and resist because somehow it's not a good look it's like no you're you're like you know we're sort of done with you now Mm. you're used you're damaged not damaged goods but you're you're used goods we've had our pound of flesh do they ever verbalize it in those kind of rejections no do they ever say are you a hot and now you're not no no it's quite the opposite because you do have meetings where they go look the format so I did some very successful documentaries and I met the tallest woman in the world, the yeah. tallest man, ran to three series. Um, and then they said, look, we think the format's done its, done its um, you know, it's, it's run its course, but we like you. Mm. And I would advise anybody that if you have a meeting with a broadcaster like that, that is the death knell. Those are very, because that's very positive. Like, oh, good. Well, they still like me. But actually, the bottom line is until there's a format, then you have nothing. Yeah. And I discovered after a year of these very positive meetings, I think, um, I think they describe it in Los Angeles as death by encouragement. Because it's almost like the better the meeting goes, the worse the outcome, you know. And actually, if the, if the meeting is such that they're really worried about the budget and is it going to be funny and can we, you know, uh, have we got the right cast, then actually, you know, you're onto something because they're seriously considering it by asking these difficult questions. Mm. Um, so no, so yeah, so basically it was several stages, which is the sort of the sense of rejection and being depressed at being rejected because no one likes rejection. Yeah. Um, then a period of mourning. Then I would say anger because you're thinking, I didn't punch anybody. I didn't, I didn't break the law, get arrested, drunk driving, crash into a tree. Um, it's like, you know, I pretty much turned up on time, was very pleasant to everyone. And, it, and even in terms of the telly stuff, you know, delivered an audience for those shows. So, yeah. so anyway, it, that was tricky. So was this just after the, maybe the documentary? I think so. I, think yeah. I would say that was the case. And was it was that just, around 10 years ago? Yeah, I, yeah. Would, I think that um, we started doing those in, in sort of 2008, three yeah. series. And they were done by, you know, the, uh, the early, um, the early uh, 2010s and balls of steel was just before that wasn't it yeah balls of steel so you kind of mid 90s i guess a purple patch from the mid 90s into the sorry mid 90s let's not go (laughs) let's not go crazy um in uh yeah the mid noughties yeah yeah Yeah. but but anyway so i think so so you've got the sort of rejection being depressed about that and Mm. then affects your self-esteem and then you have i would say maybe anger yeah and thinking, wait a minute, the last thing I did did really well. Why, why are we not carrying on with this? Because I'm, I, I, do you know something? I've always worked in commercial radio and commercial television, and I understand it's about the numbers. And if, yeah. you, if you've just got no one watching, that's why I get cross about people that, you know, the BBC will like, axe programmes. And in, in the end, it's like, well, it's a tiny, tiny audience. It's like you guys are not delivering the numbers. Yeah. That's, that's just business. And actually, that's easier to take. It's like, look, there's a downward spiral. No one's watching. Move yeah. on. 
Anyway, so did so you vent got the that anger. Did you vent that anger at all, or how did you vent that? No. Anger? Now this is where when you ask me about you know if I'm um, sort of nice and everything, mm. and I think I'm very proud. My mother is a is a I mean she's an Irish Roman Catholic lady, mm. grew up in a town near Dublin called Drogheda, and the family were always very aspirational. They were farmers. And they were the first family in the street to have a motor car, which will tell you how long ago it was. And my mum raised me, an amazing person, and she raised me to, to, um, to have pride in myself and to basically dress well, present myself well. Um, and, and more or less, I think I got from my mother this sense of, uh, uh, your your public image and how it might reflect on you, you mm. know. And then my father, who's the most sort of charismatic, warm, lovely man who was who, who was uh, in the pub business, he he I guess had the kind of performer side, and he was very funny and entertaining and warm and gregarious. And people would come to the pub to see my dad Seamus, and they would just say Seamus in, and they just enjoyed drinking um, and and having my dad as as sort of company mm. so i think what you got with my dad is a desire to be liked and to win people over and be charming and be nice my dad's catchphrase was perennially it's nice to be nice and just taught sure. all of us myself and my siblings to be nice all the time and then my mum's got this pride thing it was like don't let yourself down even now if i go on the radio and i say i'm 45 she's like, stop telling everyone you're 45 you don't look 45 <laughs> so while she's an irish roman catholic mother she's really a jewish mother in disguise <laughs> So I think what I mean by that, therefore, is um, A, this sense of not letting yourself down, not looking desperate, not, mm. you know, keeping up appearances. Mm. Um, then, what, what therefore, I'm, if I'm with, if I'm in the company of a television executive and they say, hey, how's it all going? I'm not going to lie and go, it's fantastic. I've just made three pilots. But I will go, it's good. I'm busy. I'm doing radio. I'm doing loads of gigs and um, little bits of TV here and there. And I'm always positive. So, no. Yeah. Did I vent the anger? No. Yeah. I just, what I did is hurt myself and got angry with myself and probably grew a tumour. That's basically, <laughs> I internalised the whole thing. Okay, yeah. I mean, can I just say what a lovely, it sounds like a lovely upbringing from a mum and dad to have those things being instilled in you, you know, like a yeah. pride and public image. And, you know, God, I think back at the other conversations I've had with comedians and how they've, you know, been formed into comedians, perhaps by the way they've been brought up. To have a dad who was, you know, a performer and it's nice to be nice. That's such a lovely, that's Isn't such it? a lovely catchphrase. We've had other catchphrases on this that I look back to and think, God, yeah, some parents have, because we both have kids and it's so important, yeah. isn't it, to have, to instill that in them. And that's obviously, it becomes what you are today from those first few years of your life. You know, I've heard you talk about, you know, playing card tricks to, for customers in that pub and from, yeah. a, from an early age and what you're doing in those first few years is who you still are today, isn't it? You know. Yes, one of my total heroes is Elton John. I don't yeah. quite know why that happened. But if you watch, whether or not, whatever you think of that man, mm. he, he is, has the most deep, profound desire to entertain people and make people feel good and give people a good time. And that's his, these days, his drug of choice. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really key in with him. It's funny for a comedian to have a musician as their main hero. Mm. Don't get me wrong. I've got Peter Cook and Peter Sellers and a lot of other people called Peter. But, you know, it's um, <laughs> Elton somehow is weirdly my comedy role model. 
Um, But the self-deprecation and the sense of putting on a show and, uh, you know, everything. So So that's just been there from the first few years of your life, has it? In you? It definitely definitely has. Yeah. And I think you asked about, you know, what what you do when the tide turns a bit and, and the anger and... Yeah. But you know something, even when it was happening, I knew that this was like a fever and I had had to just let it play itself out. I had to sweat it out, it had to just work its way through my body. Yeah. And I think, you know, just at the time I was like, okay, I'm depressed, now I'm angry, now I'm in mourning. And then you come through it. And I think, again, would say to anybody, if any mental health issues or anything like that, is um, maybe if you like, if you can, Perhaps surrender, to, try at least to surrender to it and just go, do you know what? Uh, it's Tuesday and I'm massively depressed. I'm amazingly depressed. And just, and that, that is what it is. Um, and uh, and I, so what I think I did handle it right, which is I just let it wash through me. Uh. And then I came out the other end and goes, and thought to myself, uh, it, it is what it is. And actually, How long a period was that? Sorry, how long a period would you say you were? Down and depressed. 25 long years. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's a great, that's a really good question. Um, probably, I would say, maybe uh, a couple of years. Oh, wow. Probably. Okay. And if you'd known me at the time, and I'm sure I did bump into you in the world of glittering world of showbiz, that you wouldn't yeah. necessarily have seen it. And it wasn't like it was tears of a clown and I was, you know, in any way, you know, it's sort of seriously mentally unwell or anything. It was mm. actually a bit more practical, which is um, I've got a tax bill that's a bit large for my for comfort and I've got a mortgage to pay and I've got kids so some of it some of that depression is perfectly reasonable and not abstract Mm. Uh, and then and then also you sort of worry a bit about your career because my focus has always been career rather than income because I always think if your career is in good shape the money will come so I think even in those days notwithstanding the regular daily financial pressure it's uh you're more thinking a deeper cash flow is one thing but I mean if you've got a script in development with a film production company and you've made two pilots for Channel 4, you don't actually have any money, but your career is in great shape, isn't it? Mm. You know, or, or a little a quirky little sort of series on Radio 4, which pays you a pittance. But you're like, yeah, but it's the, the, the distribution of Radio 4 is. So I've yeah. always focused on. So actually, when I've ever got really worried, it's more when I'm doesn't matter how broke I am. I don't let that worry me about money. I, I'm always worried if the career is not well. Because yeah. if the career is sickly, then um, it's all then it's game over, really. Yeah. And I've never actually felt, Nathan, that the career was um, was 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 in trouble. Actually, mm. I just thought that the career is having getting a bit of a beating. Oh, by the way, my, my metaphor for showbiz is that when you when there is a correction and you're a bit off the box, so you're not very hot for a while. I think of it as in Parliament, you were in the cabinet. And now you're on the back benches. Yeah. But as long as you're still in Parliament, you can always make a glorious return. <laughs> nice. Nice. So you never considered at that time doing anything else? No, I think that's probably the one thing that keeps most of us comedians um, going. Yeah. Is the idea that uh, we would have to get a job that would, uh, I mean, <laughs> that strikes... Uh, a stake in my heart that's the most painful thought of getting a job in the end um i have a deep compulsion to do this job and there is definitely no alternative yeah 
and however depressed you were in that time doing anything else the thought of that because I've done other jobs and they make me depressed in terms of you know mm. 10 years ago doing doing another job and uh, knowing that this is what I wanted to do that's what really gets you down doesn't it that you yeah that you have no opportunity to do it or the opportunities are limited so yeah no absolutely. and I think I think um I think you have to my um Michael J. Fox, who obviously is a wonderful Hollywood actor who has Parkinson's and he has, he made a statement that I think is helpful to all humans, which is, and obviously he's dealing with quite significant symptoms of Parkinson's and he's got mobility issues and he's shaking and amazingly still a, a busy working actor, but you know, it's, it's hard. And he said that there's a sweet spot in terms of achieving happiness for him. And it's the following, which is, the minimum expectation and the maximum acceptance. Oh. And I think that unlocks everything in life. So he doesn't expect necessarily to be able to get through a working day because of his symptoms. So the expectations are low. And he also accepts that he has that illness and that that's, it's not going away. There's no miracle cure and that's the closure. And I think that's what happened to me in the end is that I just thought, do you know something? You benefit greatly when you're hot. You get all those gigs that you probably don't deserve and there's a buzz around you and you get fast-tracked. And then the opposite happens when you're not hot, where there's stuff that you deserve that you don't get. And you, have, you can't have it both ways. If you've been on that roller coaster and you've enjoyed the upward curve, which, let's be honest, is beyond, it's forces beyond your control. You've been lucky. Um, when it then goes the other way, you're like, well... I, I had my ride. See, I've got an interesting thing for you, Nathan, and it's to do with the human soul, which is I think we are supposed to be busy. We're supposed to produce. I actually think we exist to reproduce, eat, work, sleep, and then die. I mean, I think that is our... There isn't a creature on earth that doesn't have a job of work to do, and it's all obviously all tied in with, in, you know, in the natural world, finding food, fighting off predators... And surviving and then sending your DNA on to the next generation. And how, how are we any different? We are creatures, we're animals too. Oh. And therefore, um, I think that your soul doesn't know how much you're being paid for one gig as compared to another. So what I mean by that is, if you get up in the morning and you're out and you're active and you're doing stuff, it doesn't matter whether it pays a lot, nothing, or a huge amount. It's nourishing for your soul because you're, you're just producing work. Mm. Um, so this, this is interesting because I was very hung up on TV's quite well paid and broadcasting. And then there's a gig in Birmingham which will pay £55. And then they'll maybe ask me if I want a drink when I get there. And you're yeah. like, how does that add up? Yeah. But I'm like, well, I'm free that night. It's Birmingham. There'll be an audience there. It's just, just do it, you know, yeah. at least if you, if you break even, I try to avoid gigs where I'm going to lose money unless I'm maybe breaking in new material or something. Mm. So anyway, I think that your soul doesn't know whether it's a five grand corporate or 50 quid in Birmingham. Yeah. And therefore I worked incredibly hard, just did every gig and became incredibly happy. And what I felt was I felt as good as I felt when I was on telly all the time. And it's because... Your body likes to work, your soul, your brain. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the money side of it is just a sort of 
you know, it's a sort of a, it's a side issue, really. Yeah, great. And do you think that goes back to your mother as well in terms of instilling you with that pride, you know? I think so, give you the yeah. Strength, to give you the strength to do that at that time. Well, I think so. Um, I am 45. I keep mm. saying that. My mother will be furious. Mm. And I grew up in the 80s and I remember the miners' strike. And I also remember very high unemployment. And it was very, it was real, the real social ill of our, of our time in the 80s was, mm. was being jobless. Yeah. And actually, I do remember customers and a couple of guys who were laid off and they got a big fat redundancy of maybe 10, 15 grand, which in the mid 80s was a huge amount of money. Mm. And I watched some of those guys more or less drink it away with no real hope of ever getting back into that industry that they'd left. Yeah. And um, I'm afraid it was a real sorry, a sorry, sorry end for them. Yeah. So anyway, I grew up with seeing unemployment being a really bad thing. And I think it's because, um, yeah, people need to, I, I see it as a human, I see it as a human right to work. I think having accommodation is a human right in a, in a civilized society, access to medical care, food and, sh uh, and, and also, but working. I don't think we think enough of working as a human right. Mm. And whenever I've been unproductive and just sat at home feeling sorry for myself and not working is when I've been uh, m m the least well physically and mentally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it's interesting, you know, look, you, you, you seem to have such a good upbringing that, you know, as I say, the way your mom and dad instilled those things in you, you know, we talk about luck, we talk about that moment walking down the stairs with Dan Mazer, but a lot of us are lucky because we have that good upbringing, aren't we? You know, I've talked yeah. to a lot of comedians that aren't lucky enough to have that good upbringing, and at those moments of crisis, you, you have to call upon what's been instilled upon, in you. And I think maybe people that haven't had that are not going to have that strength. And it's recognising that and maybe listening to, God, you've come out with such great stuff there in terms of minimum expectation, maximum acceptance. It's that where therapists or friends need to step in um, in later years, where you haven't had that instilled in you uh, as a kid to give you that strength. You know, I do agree. And I think show business is a very hard industry because when you don't get hired, not only is it a practical issue around your income, it's a rejection of you. There's no, nowhere to hide. It's, yeah. we don't want Mark Dolan, you know. And yeah. what you have to do is understand that it's a meat market. Enjoy that it's a meat market. It's a beauty contest. Yeah. And you just put your lipstick on, you squeeze into that bikini and you smile. Yeah. And if it doesn't go your way, you just you move on and you look forward to the next one yeah and you just get a really thick skin and you're right i'm not sure whether i would have been able to do that if i hadn't grown up being um in a very secure environment with a strong sense that i was special which by the way every child should be made to feel special because every human being is special mm. um and and i don't think i was spoiled but i was just loved and i felt very secure you know yeah well that's great thank goodness so yeah with uh with stand-up, you know, having gone from TV and Balls of Steel and those documentaries and uh, doing stand-up, and it's nice to hear it was making you happy, you know, performing in Birmingham for 55 quid when the train is 60 quid. Correct. It's, uh, that's, it's such a great thing that we can always go back to if we do any TV or any film or anything like that. If, if stand-up makes you happy, you can do that any night of the week for a small amount of money in the UK, 
and uh, it's a great it's a great thing. Does it does it make you happy still, stand up? Um, yeah, I I think that stand up comedy is very good for human health. I actually would encourage anybody to try it. Even don't encourage more people. To well, try I, it's a good point, by the way. <laughs> But I, I we think need to get that upward curve going. Well, it is very, it's very yeah. true, by the way. But yeah. it, it's, it's very, I, somehow, I think it's, I mean, public speaking, there's a book by Dale Carnegie, who's one of the original self-help authors from the 1930s, an American self-help guru. Mm. And he talks a lot about how public speaking is, is actually very good for uh, your mental health. I don't really know why, but um, it's, it's uh, yeah, so stand-up definitely makes me happy because we're in a lovely business where we are there to make people laugh. Laughter is a great release. It's mm. also a thing that separates us from the beast. Uh, it's a very human quality to cope with things through laughter. It's a release of stress. Um, yeah. And I, I, I have a great deep desire to entertain people. I, I'm, I want to make people feel good. I'm quite sociable. I like having people come around and I cook for them. And the way that I prepare food is exactly the same as the way that I prepare material as a comedian. It's about giving pleasure. And I've got two sons, and I do think they're quite lucky because they get the most elaborate uh, dishes served. Um, <laughs> you know, my mum's cooking was really good and decent and solid, but it was, you know, pork chop, mashed potatoes, uh, and a bit of broccoli, you know, whereas it was, it, it's. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite keen on cooking and stuff. So I think actually every aspect of my life is about making people feel good. And maybe this is where I can offer you, I can throw a spanner in the works. Because oh. I know we've talked about a, a very happy, secure, interesting childhood because I grew up above a pub. Yep. And that was really never boring. But there is a sort of flip side to that. So sorry to leave you on that cliffhanger. There was just so much that we couldn't fit into a single episode. Join us again in part two of my conversation with Mark Dolan, where he continues to talk so honestly and insightfully about his career. And although he's been so successful, what might be holding him back and what he might need to do to change. That if you change what the public see, if you change what's on the outside, take you a long way so join us next week for part two of mark dolan on apple podcasts spotify uk or wherever you get your podcasts if you liked it please give us a five-star review it helps other people to find us maybe psychopathically three-star reviews psychomaly was written and presented by me nathan Caskey, bsc in psychology produced and edited by mike hansen ba english for pop people productions theme music by mike as well so that's Psychomedy. Please subscribe, rate, listen back on all the great episodes so far. They're listed in this video clips and more at psychomedy.co.uk. Follow us on social media at psychomedypod, at podpeopleuk, at Nathan Casty, and at Mr. Mark Dolan. Lots of love. See you again for part two next week. <laughs>